Rusty Quill presents. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. On Scars in Time. Deathly ill from smoke inhalation, Ash comes to sharing the headspace of another version of herself, a woman that goes by Ashley Colon, a woman who married Mike Colon instead of killing him. Ash and this other self bicker over their respective differences, both ultimately deciding that they're better apart. They meet a third, very ill, Ash in the garret, who tells our Ash that she must find the Medusa, then find the painter. With little explanation, Ash is thrown from the garret and into a storm. Her pneumonia returns and she collapses, only to be picked off the ground by a very familiar doctor. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 13. The first patient. I could tell the house was no longer mine as I was dragged into it, sopping, half dead and cradled in the arms of this massive man, this all too familiar doctor. Yet the doctor, like the house, was not quite right. 
the sense of ownership I felt when in my house, my own house and not that perversion I shared with Mike, was not altogether gone. It was instead like a seed in the ground waiting for an old tree to die before sprouting. This would be my home someday. But for now, it was his. I was merely a guest. But the house, I felt, knew me to some degree. There we are, he said, sitting me in a wooden chair beside the sweeping central staircase. It was one of six others in a matching set I recognized from the dining room, the wall much newer and fresh and well-varnished. They were heavier, too, I noticed as he slid me into place on the seat, as though there was more substance to them now than when I had used them in the future. Now, what's your name, young miss? He asked. I glared up at him and would have corrected him on my age, but the slightest breath started a fresh round of hard coughing. He gave me a second look and apologized. I'm sorry. In your state, you seemed much younger. The man grabbed me rudely by the chin and held my face up to his. His glasses were flecked with rainwater, but not covered in filth the way they had been in my visions. I could see simple, brown human eyes behind the glass. Ah, and I suppose you're married as well, he mumbled to himself. Well then, ma'am, could you please tell me your name? Ash Littletree, I managed between ragged breaths. He nodded, but I could tell he didn't know the name. And you? I sputtered. Ah, you don't know. Dr. Braun Starling, he said holding out a hand. I should say Professor Braun Starling, of course. My medical license doesn't extend to the state of West Virginia, though I assure you that's no concern of yours. I'm not here to treat patients, but to study them in my capacity as an epidemiologist. Do you understand that word? Yes, I said. It didn't look like he believed me, but he continued anyway. I'm saying all this because I'm afraid you have made the same mistake many others around here have, he said. That is, seeking me out as a man of medicine in order to receive treatment. Treatment that I cannot legally provide. Is that the case, ma'am? He spoke loudly, bent over at the waist so that he was functionally shouting at my forehead. His arms remained clasped behind his back the entire time. Somewhat rigidly, I noticed. It felt like the speech he'd just given was as much for himself as for me. No, I said. My wind had returned for the most part, though the pain of coughing and a bone-deep fatigue lingered. He raised an eyebrow at me. I just... I got lost in the storm. Lost? In the storm? He asked looking to the front door. It was my same door, in much better condition and a slightly lighter shade of brown, but the same. The noise of the rain smashing against the pavement outside was a dull roar, but beneath that I could hear the distant and gentle tapping of the typewriter. I looked up to the ceiling, trying to find the telltale dust falls I had seen before, but there were none. There aren't but a few hundred souls in Mr. Compson's little mining town, 
Dr. Starling said. And I've come to know most of them by intention or by incident. And I've never seen you once. And now you say you got lost in a storm and somehow landed sick on my front porch. This is one of the better schemes of prevailing against my reticence. I'll give you that at least. He finally noticed the water on his glasses, taking them off to dry them and shaking his head at me all the while. Who is your husband then, ma'am, so that I might send you back to him before you spread the consumption to my household? I'm not here for treatment, I said, glaring at him. The intensity of my expression caused him to start. And I don't have consumption. As though to nullify my own point, I had to bury my face in my elbow to cough. The spell was half as long as the others. I have pneumonia. Pneumonia? Of course you have pneumonia, he said. It was his turn to lower his eyes at me, or so he believed, at least. Pneumonia, madam, is what is called a symptom in the medical parlance. It is not the disease itself which... In the case of your fellows throughout this beleaguered state is most likely tuberculosis, consumption, as it is commonly called. Didn't you say you're not a doctor? I asked, stuttering my words through a series of coughs. Starling cleared his throat and gave me a dirty look. I didn't say, he started. You said you can't provide medical treatment, yes? I said. My voice was as thick with venom as it was with phlegm. Is a diagnosis not part and parcel of most treatments? He took a step back and made a show of rolling his eyes. A doctor, a doctor licensed to practice medicine in this state, diagnosed me with smoke inhalation. I recently survived a, well, a small house fire. The doctor in question had been Darcy. That other Darcy. That other world, sure, but she had been Darcy all the same. I thought of her and how much I wanted, needed her to be here with me. How much I would love for a door to open in the wall and for a clean, white medical light to dispel this insanity as she came into whatever psych ward to retrieve me. Very well, he said. I think he wanted to say more, but there was a knock at the door. He stepped toward it, his last thoughts stalling on his tongue. He'd even released that tight grip on his own arms behind his back to point at me. But the knock repeated, and he excused himself to answer the door. I took the moment to rest against the wall and to take a series of deep, deep breaths that barely penetrated the funk coating my lungs. Ah, Mr. Cutting, the doctor said. I turned to the door and almost lost control of the sharp little squeak of fear that crept up my throat. A man was there, all in wet brown clothing and shaking off a very, very familiar umbrella on the front porch. Everything about him was the same, the clothes, the rotund body, and, of course, the umbrella. But when he set the still-dripping canvas aside, I saw a perfectly normal slightly nervous man's face instead of the wet putty horror I was expecting. I still swallowed nervously. The man, Mr. Cunning, the doctor had called him, 
doffed his top hat and then tucked it under his arm as the doctor ushered him inside. He looked around the house with a criminal's quick eyes. His gaze landed on me for half a second and then continued on as he spoke. Thank you, Dr. Starling, he said. Lord, it's nice and warm in here, isn't it? Yes, it is, the doctor replied. Do you need to linger a minute to warm yourself? Is the girl with you? Does she need to warm herself too? Oh, surely, if you don't mind, Cuddick said, rubbing his hands together. She's out there minding the mule, but she can tie him up while we offload the... He gave a glance in my direction, and this time the doctor's eyes followed. He sighed and waved his hand at me. Don't worry about that one, he said. She's just something the rain has blown in. Tell the girl to come warm her bones, and we'll handle the delivery there. Then I'll have Christina boil some water for tea. Or coffee, if you prefer. I'll always take coffee first, if it's there. Cutting began to say as they walked outside. Even if it's gold. Their voices faded as they walked out into the storm. My coughing spells had subsided enough that other things had begun to bother me instead. Namely, the lingering wet and cold from the storm. I stood and walked to the great, central hearth which was fully ablaze with a six-log fire. I'd never have used that much wood in the thing, but right then I was happy for the small bonfire heating the house. In just a few seconds, I could already feel my clothes drying. Oh, it's nice how hot they keep it here, isn't it? Said a girl's voice beside me. I turned to find my blue-eyed ghost standing next to me, dressed in a boy's brown canvas slacks and a heavy, white cotton shirt just dry enough to allow her some modesty. A thick, black canvas jacket dripped onto the hearthstones as she held it before her to dry. Yes, I said, staring at her. There was none of that glittering brilliance about her, but it was her and not just another impression. I could feel it. I waited for some cruel or knowing jab, a hint even, but the girl just smiled at me and looked back into the fire. Her eyes softened as the heat set into her, dug through the cold, until I could tell her mind was a million miles away from this place. The door slapping open against the interior wall startled both of us, but only I turned to see Cutting and Dr. Starling carrying a stretcher into the house. I felt a cold sweat break out of my forehead when I saw the hand dangling from beneath the tatty camp blanket covering the thing. Cutting urged Dr. Starling to set the stretcher down for a moment to adjust the series of straps holding the lumpy body down. It was a man, or at least somebody with the thickly knuckled, hairy fingers of a man. Cutting tucked all that away and the two of them continued on toward the kitchen. For a brief, horrifying moment, I thought of Dr. Starling disassembling bodies on our great wooden prep table in the kitchen and all the food I'd eaten there. Thankfully, he and Cutting turned and disappeared down the basement stairs. Cutting's boots made a terrible racket on the stepboards as they moved out of sight. I shivered and stepped closer to the fire only then noticing the girl staring at me again. She had a rueful, embarrassed smile on her face. You've never seen the likes of that before, huh? 
she asked, pointing to me. You got some funny clothes on, so maybe you've seen weirder. I realized I was looking down at her from quite an angle. She was younger than I expected, maybe just 19 or so. Perhaps not the ghost I knew, that glowing thing, jewel-eyed and cruel. I'm just passing through, I said. Us two, she said. Always like, just passing through. What's your name? I asked. Her eyes lit up and her mouth opened, but the question remained unanswered. Cutting called to her, saying only girl, from the entrance to the basement and she raced off without a second glance. Only her slowly evaporating footprints remained, and then not even those. Can I help you? A voice asked from the second floor landing. I looked up to find a woman with East Asian features looking down at me. Her hair was styled into perfect, curving loops beneath her ears. Paint-red lips curved into a polite smile. I'm not sure if anyone can, I said, coughing into my arm. I had meant the comment to sound more light-hearted, but the woman frowned and scurried down the stairs to me. In a moment she was looking me over, unfurling her hands from the loose arms of her dress to pluck at my wet clothes. She clucked her tongue. Please, come with me, will you? She asked, not waiting for my response and moving back upstairs without a look back. I gave the fireplace one last glance and then followed. She had me strip behind a privacy screen in the master bedroom and disappeared my clothes into a hamper. The clothing she gave me was simple and more feminine than I was used to. A loose-fitting dress, thick, knee-high stockings, and a set of terribly ugly shoes with short, flat heels. I realized after a moment they were a sort of maid's uniform, which she confirmed when I was finished dressing. Wonderful, she said, looking me over. I thought we'd never find a use for those old clothes. We haven't had a maidservant to wear them since we left Cambridge. She chuckled. Are you looking for work? I have a terrible lot to do, assisting my husband. Your husband? I asked. Yes, Dr. Braun Starling. She replied, as though I should already know all that. I overheard you both speaking down there. I believe he intends to turn you out after the storm. I began coughing and she stepped back, turning her face aside even though I was covering my mouth. I'm, I'm sorry for that, I said. She pulled a hand free of her dress sleeves and waved at me. No, no, she said. It's quite all right. Her eyes, dark and low, almost glittered at me. Were you lying when you told my husband how you came about that terrible cough of yours? No. I said, and her gaze diminished. She smiled. Well then, we should have no problem boarding you for a while if you don't mind working. She said. How old are you? Fifty, I replied. She laughed at me. A short, sharp bark she seemed to actually catch with her hand. She slipped those same clenched fingers back into her sleeve as though she were actually holding something and didn't want me to see. 
You look well for 50, she said. I'm 32 myself. How is it that you have such oddly patterned hair? Her sentences were quick, nicking in at me like little needles. But I couldn't think of any alternative than answering. I needed to get to the attic and for real this time. If I got myself kicked out of the house, I might never get back in. I had a bad accident when I was a teenager, I said. I waved my finger over the fishnet of white hair on the side of my head. All of this is scar tissue. Remarkable, she said, approaching me with her hand out. She paused just inches from me. Is it okay if I touch it? Sure, I said, and she pushed her fingers into my hair. The touch was dispassionate, clinical. I felt the pads of her fingers moving over each length of scar. Whoever made these stitches has a great deal of talent, she said. Do you know the doctor's name? I honestly couldn't remember and shook my head. She frowned and moved her hand higher on my scalp. And you know your own name, yes? Of course, I said. She paused and stared at my face, waiting for me to answer the obvious next question. My name is Ashley. Ashley Littletree. I know, the woman said, pulling her fingers out of my hair and returning them to the sleeves of her dress. I told you I was eavesdropping on you and my husband. She paused and then extended her hand. My name is Christine. Christine Starling. I shook her hand and then repeated my own name, feeling a little foolish as I did so. Then she smiled, retracted her hand, and left the room. I followed her, keeping up as best I could, only stopping for a moment when I saw my own reflection in the vanity mirror. I was younger, much younger. Maybe twenty again, though I didn't much feel it. My face was almost frighteningly smooth, Still stretched a touch by the tightness of the scars on the side of my head, sure. But the slightly cruel cast of my mouth was diminished and the lines on my face were mostly gone. Christine Starling was watching me from the doorway. Small and dark enough in the shadows there, she gave me a start. A slight smile played across her face. Notice anything out of the ordinary? She asked. I shook my head and said nothing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Wow, what a great story. But I have no fucking idea what's going on in it to you. Maybe it'd be a little easier to understand if I had access to a, a written version of the show to follow along with and read back through. Maybe even some, I, I don't know, behind the story information to clear up some of my, my fucking questions. Oh, wait, right there. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it says right there. Join the West Side Fairy Tales Patreon today and get access to behind the story audio programs and fully laid out chapters of this story, Scars in Time, and most of the West Side Fairy Tales back catalog for just five measly dollars a month. Wow, what a deal. Oh, it even says here you can get special merch packs and signed posters if you give a a, a more generous donation. Uh, that means he needs your money, people. This isn't a fucking charity. Okay, go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today and subscribe for excellent behind-the-story content and more. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. Link is in the description. Don't forget to watch my show if it's for... Ah, come on! I'm not doing this for free! Now back to our story, already in progress. I followed her to the second floor landing, where she stopped me abruptly by pausing just past the door leading to the third floor attic. I thought about turning and running up the stairs then but there was something about the softness of the noise of the typewriter that kept me from acting. The taps were still there, but they were just that, taps. Gentle as spring rain on a church roof, not that deluge, that scissoring mechanical maelstrom that had first drawn me to the attic. And the boy, cutting. He's working out well, a man asked downstairs. I peered past Christine to where Dr. Starling and another man were standing by the door. Cutting in the girl, the one so like my ghost, seemed to have gone. He's hardly a boy, Mr. Compson, but yes, he's quite dependable, Dr. Starling said. The one he just brought is, well, exactly to my specifications, despite some mild damage. It's really quite incredible. When I told him what I need, I... Well, Starling chuckled nervously. I never actually thought that he'd deliver. The man, Mr. Comson, finished for him. Yes, well, Starling began, clearing his throat. Well, I mean to say, I thought my specifications were impossible, sir. But the ages, the weights, Lord... Even the amount of exposure in the region are all absolutely uniform. It, it's... I could hear in Starling's voice that he was trying to express something without overstepping. It is all perfectly above board, if that's what you're worried about, Braun, the man said, slapping a black-gloved hand down on Starling's shoulder. He was considerably smaller than the doctor, but the touch carried a great deal of impact. Starling almost stumbled, in fact. And, most importantly, it's nothing you have to worry about. Understand? The man's head, he'd been facing away from us for the entirety of the exchange, shifted slightly in my direction. I shuddered. Yes, Mr. Compson, Starling said, 
Good, Comson said. He turned fully toward us and I was happy for the interceding distance. Otherwise, you might have seen the barely concealed shock on my face. The man was an almost perfect doppelganger of Bobby Chatterley. Gun Cotton's odd, young, and somewhat threatening mare. There were noticeable differences, of course. Compson's hair was jet black, where Bobby's was a deep red. More noticeable, however, were Compson's almost radiant purple eyes. Not colored by an effect of light or any such thing. They were like a storm-clouded sky struck through with deep lightning. They fell on me, and I felt frozen like a prey animal in the gaze of a true apex predator. Is that your wife up there? He asked. Yes, Mr. Compson. Christine answered before descending the stairs with me in tow. She had, in fact, grabbed the waist of my dress in a surreptitious way so as to drag me along without the men being able to see. How nice of you to stop by. I certainly wasn't expecting you tonight. I'm so busy I sometimes forget to call ahead, he replied. Dr. Starling might have thought the man's eyes were on his wife, but in truth they were boring into me. My mouth was completely dry. I have a terrible habit of showing up unannounced. Oh, I hope you don't feel you've intruded, Christine said, even though Compson hadn't given the slightest indication that he did, nor did he bother confirming so. And who exactly are you supposed to be? He asked me. The danger was an almost physical pressure on my body. Christine spoke on my behalf. Our new maid, Mr. Compson. She... I asked her. Compson snarled. Christine smiled and turned her eyes down to the floor. I could see her shoulders shaking, if only slightly. Your name, he said to me. Demeanor again calm, but still terribly forceful. I didn't want to speak, but I did anyway. Ash, sir. I said, ducking my head and trying to play the obedient maid. Ash Littletree. Is that supposed to be a joke? He asked. The room felt suddenly very dark. Only the fire in the hearth seemed to play upon the man's face, though it was slow and almost liquid in its motions. Neither Christine nor Starling seemed to be able to move. Or perhaps only he could move now. This is one of her idiotic games, he asked. His voice had grown in volume, but didn't seem to come from the body in front of me. I could feel something instead, outside of the house. A great and lightly glowing thing pressing its many eyes against the windows, even the roof. I was suddenly aware that I wasn't breathing. Did the ash tree put you in my path? He asked. In his voice lay a sound more present now than the snapping of the keys on the paper had ever been to me. It was gentle and lulling, cold waves lapping against the shore of a subterranean lake. Glowing purple tendrils moved through the frothy surf, disturbing the pebbles in their search for something. Something. The feeling grew in intensity until I could feel it pulsing inside my head just behind my left eye. 
I tried to raise my hand to that pain, not knowing what I'd do even if I could reach it. But my arm wouldn't move. Then I could feel things moving out of me. Ideas, memories, the fear I was feeling at that very moment. It might have continued unabated forever, for all I knew. But for a moment there was a surge in the noise of the typewriter. It grew to a sudden, incredible crescendo that shredded these images in my mind like meat falling into a grinder. Compson recoiled. I felt that quite viscerally. And then everything was as it had been just seconds before. The fire, the doctor and his wife, this odd, horrifying man, and I were all back and moving regularly. He smiled. I'm sorry for that bit of rudeness, he said to me. One can never be too careful. I realized that he was holding my head firmly in his hands, as though it were a melon he was about to bite into, his palms on my chin and the back of my skull. He let me go and I stumbled to my place behind Christine, keeping my eyes on the floor. A cough built in my chest that dropped me to my knees. Soon I was looking at that ornate tile work in the center of the floor through a haze of tears. Keep me apprised of your work, Braun, Compson said. You can have anything you need. Anything. Save an extension on your deadlines. Do we understand each other? Yes, sir, Mr. Compson, Dr. Starling said. Thank you again, sir. Think nothing of it, Compson replied stepping forward and slapping me hard on the back. I felt thin, hideous tendrils flowing through my flesh for a brief second. They moved into my chest, into my lungs, like worms. Then I was hacking up some nightmarish black mess onto the floor. Oxygen filled my lungs the second the oily sludge passed my lips, and I vomited. Well, Compson said, laughing. There's something to put under your microscope. Eh, Braun? I heard footsteps leaving me in every direction a second later. Compson's hard, aggressive heels clicked out the front door. Christine walked for the kitchen and Dr. Starling went for the living room, though she managed to return much ahead of him. It was she who helped me to my feet and cleaned me up as Starling rummaged for something in what sounded like a pile of glass. Christine wiped my face with a rag. You might want to ask questions about Mr. Compson's visit, but you will not, understand? She asked. The first word in my head was why, but I simply nodded. I was breathing too hard to talk. Not coughing, however, even though my lungs were pumping like I'd just run a marathon. The unclean feeling of those wormy tendrils lingered. Mr. Compson is my husband's benefactor, and mine. And he's a very, very generous man, she said. Her words were soft and quiet. She cleaned my face like a sculptor smoothing in the last fine lines of a long project. His generosity has its requirements, however. Rules. She finished and stepped back, looking me over. We keep his name off our lips when not using it in his presence, and his motives are never to be spoken of or guessed aloud. The grime-befouled tea towel she'd used on my face disappeared into her sleeve. 
Then she leaned close to my ear and whispered, The black lake in the stone cave is real. She said, her voice sharp, If you wish to someday visit, all you need to do is speak of it. I swallowed, nodded, and thanked her for helping me get myself back together. Good God, what a mess, the doctor said, returning with an oversized mason jar and a gardening trowel. He fell to his knees and began scraping up the slime Compson had smacked out of my lungs when he'd hit me. The wormy feeling had gone, though the memory of it remained unpleasant. Seeing starlings scraping up my leavings didn't help. Husband, really, Christine chided him. Let the girl clean that for you. The girl? He asked, looking at me and then at her. Were you serious about making her a maid? He didn't stop scraping up the gunk. It stained his exposed flesh like ink. I shivered, thinking what it may have done to my lips. Would I ever lie to Mr. Compson? Christine asked. Her tone was sharp enough to send a chill up my spine. Starling just ignored her. Of course not, of course not, he said. But I don't need her here. This is a gift, a gift from Mr. Compson. A riddle, perhaps, or maybe even a clue. God, to know the mind of a creature such as him. He shifted the trowel and the jar quite suddenly, and nearly the whole of the mass slid into the glass mouth with the grace of a dead jellyfish. I almost vomited seeing the black mess as a single thing. I don't know why that made it worse, but it did. Husband, Christine said. Her tone carried a warning. He paused, looking over the scrim of normal vomit remaining on the floor with a curious eye. Well, he said. His voice was slow with deliberation. If you want to keep her, (laughs) keep her. You know I just found her out there in the rain. Said she was... Just lost out there, not sick either, but here's the evidence. She was sicker than maybe she knows. Uh, How about that? He pointed to me without looking up from the nastiness on the tile. She said she was married too. (laughs) He said. He coughed then. A hoarse, scratchy clearing of his throat. Young, pretty thing, just laying around wet in the street. Married but alone, and where's the husband, huh? (laughs) He gave a braying laugh. And for the first time since he dragged me inside, I remembered the doctor from that nightmare ward. Dirty glasses and dirty teeth. (laughs) She's lucky I'm married, isn't she, wife? Unmarried man, my... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> man might have ideas. <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> I am a doctor, after all, and I've got ideas on treatment. I know the kind of treatment a young woman like that might <laughs> might like. <laughs> I stepped back from him. 
I might have run for it if Christine hadn't grabbed my wrist and frozen me in place. She smiled softly, looking down at him as he chuckled into the jar of sickness. I was glad his eyes were on the ground as his laughter continued. Continued and continued. When the spell had ended, Christine squeezed me in a friendly way and then let me go. My wrist ached slightly. I hadn't realized how intense her grip had been. I'm going to have Ash prepare us some tea, husband, she said, looking down at the man's head. He was scraping at the remnants he hadn't been able to get into the jar, and the sound of the trowel against the tile was terrible. He muttered and chuckled, those same awful guffawing noises. <laughs> Christine raised a hand to me, I think to keep me from starting like a horse and racing off. It worked. Yes, 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 he finally said. That'll be nice. Christine turned her head to me and nodded slightly, and I left the room as quickly as possible. Firewood is downstairs, Ash, she called after me. Why don't you stoke the fire in the stove first, and then I'll help you tend to the kettle. Yes, ma'am, I called over my shoulder. Fists clenched at my sides and my shoulders almost up to my ears. I rounded the stairs to the basement and slapped the wall half a dozen times until I heard the click of the light switch. They took their time coming on, but they were far, far brighter now than in my own version of this house. I didn't wait until the basement was fully lit before racing down into it and collapsing against the wall opposite the stairs shaking and shivering and sinking into a crouch. I broke into sobs, pressing the heels of my palms into my eyes, and then, when that didn't help, wrapping my arm around my mouth and screaming softly into the crook of my elbow. That little storm rose and broke almost as soon as it had come, and in seconds, or at least it felt like seconds, I was up and drying my cheeks and searching for firewood. I had been overwhelmed, I admit, but I wouldn't, couldn't, let it stop me. That man, Thompson, who looked so much like Bobby, had scared me senseless. He hadn't done much save sharing those visions of that underground lake, but the sheer, dead-eyed malice he'd shown had shaken me. It and all the things, the doctor's insane face down chuckling and that man cutting looked so much like my umbrella man and of course her the girl who looked like my ghost it was as though all the players had assembled myself included but only they knew their lines knew their place and purpose mine was only to run and hide and blend and escape 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 even then my heart was beating so bad I thought it might pop I found the firewood. It was hard and common, pine or poplar or oak. Or ash, I thought. I wouldn't know my pseudo-namesake would if I'd been beaten to death with a stick of it. My knowledge of trees was mostly what I could repeat, names in a book without faces. I grabbed a few chunks of wood and stuck them beneath my arm. 
the lights, which were great banks of bulbs set into clustered discs along the ceiling, had finally finished charging. When I turned, the space was filled with light, and it was massive. I realized only just then that I was standing on the opposite side of the rough wall that existed in my version of this basement. The wood pile, at least thirty logs side to side, six high and three deep, barely extended past where the wall would be. Beyond that was an open space clearly in the midst of some great, subterranean construction project. Sacks of what I assumed to be concrete were piled against the walls, along with neat cubes of fresh bricks and odd, flat pieces of steel stacked here and there. All along the floor were broad trenches fitted with curved brick gutters leading into a square, barred central grade. Some of what would be built had been finished. I saw what looked like brick and concrete horse stalls formed into the wall on the right, some of which at the far end were complete and reached all the way to the ceiling. I walked beneath metal hangers suspended from a ceiling only partially clad in thin, riveted steel sheeting. Ceramic tubes hung through several of the sheets fitted over with the things I thought of as horse stalls, and thin bits of wire dangled limp and crooked from them. But what caught my attention most of all was the complicated steel and ceramic operating table left of the center of the room. Not an operating table, a voice in my head said. An autopsy table. That was clear enough from what lay atop it, now no longer covered in the leather straps and wet canvas camp blanket. A corpse, pale in death to the point of paper, his light blue eyes blank and fixed on the ceiling. Breath softened my chest. I approached him, this dead man. His hand hung loose off the side of the table. I told myself that, perhaps... It was a lingering effect of his death or the post-mortem condition, but something caught my eye. The thumb of his right hand, the loose hand, was perfectly rust-red. The color of the rest of him was a haunting, almost yellowish paleness that shifted to a horrifically bruised-looking lividity along his bottom half, that is, the side of him facing the surface of the table. But that thumb... That thumb stood out. Without thinking, I took his wrist in my fingers and turned the hand so I could better see it. Along the center of the thumb, almost invisible because of its thinness, was a single incision. Coloring his skin was the blood that had come from that wound, but it wasn't spread out in a way that made sense for a simple cut. No, something else had happened. I left the man's hand to rest back against the table and then looked at my own thumb, imagining a drop of blood there. I pressed it against my forefinger, thinking how a drop of blood from a cut like that might leave a fingerprint on a piece of paper. Or a postcard, that same voice said inside my head. What year is it? Christine asked behind me. I screamed quite loudly, and dropped the wood on the basement floor. I looked from the corpse to her and back again. She sighed. He's here legally. 
part and parcel of my husband's work, in fact. But more to the point, he is supposed to be here. There are no errors in the logic of how he came in from the storm. What does your husband do? I ask, not answering her question even though I couldn't get it out of my mind. He's what they'll one day call an epidemiologist, though in the circles he travels in now it's called germ theory. She said, her eyes were low and dark, glittering. What year is it? She walked toward me slowly, the hem of her dress barely moving as she crossed the floor. I could see some tension in her shoulders, though her hands remained out of sight. I looked from those big sleeves to the wood on the ground and then to her eyes. A faint smile crossed her lips. My husband used to tell me everything, she continued. Before we first moved here, he told me about a little blonde girl he kept running into at the hospital in Cambridge. She was dying of tuberculosis and was positive. Positive. He was the only one who could cure her. So much so that he started believing it himself. Even when I and the medical board tried to convince him that no such girl existed or had been seen by staff, he swore. Swore to me she was real and he was the only one who could save her. He told me she gave him such grand ideas about his work. Christine had backed me up against the autopsy table. She wasn't a large woman, but she was still taller than me by almost an inch, it seemed. More so, I could feel something other than the thin bones of her arms beneath the sleeves of her dress. Something harder and thinner that poked me slightly when she shifted into a more comfortable position, still pressing against me. I would do anything for my husband, she said, but I will not allow him to drive himself insane on the behalf of some specter. Her face was less than an inch from mine, or any interference from another woman who doesn't know what year it is. Her eye searched mine then, a rapid movement from left to right, unhesitating, unyielding. I didn't say a word. For a long, long moment, the only sound in the basement was my nervous breathing. Then she stepped backward and smiled, shaking her head slightly. Ash, little tree, she said. Yes, ma'am, I responded. My hands were on the autopsy table behind me, and I could feel the toes of the dead man's foot pressing cold into my flesh. You are in my service so long as you live in this house, do you understand? She asked. Her smile was warm, but I didn't dare move closer. Yes, ma'am, I said. Good, she replied. Her hand slipped out of her sleeve exposing a nine-inch-long decorative needle. Its black lacquer coating flashed as she leaned her head forward and to the side, allowing a spill of hair to fall loose over her shoulder. Then, with an expertise that astonished me, 
She spun the loose hairs with the needle and tucked it into place opposite its sister, which I only just saw then on the other side of her head. Now, if you'll please carry that wood upstairs, you'll only need two pieces for the oven, it's not terribly large, and light the stove. I'll prepare the water and the pot for the tea, she said. I know you're not from where I'm from. Try to remember going forward that it would be rude for you to serve him tea while I'm in the house. That's my prerogative. Understood? Yes, ma'am, I said, breathing for the first time in what felt like forever, and relaxing enough to slide away from the table, the dead man's foot, and, most importantly, the black needle now laying hidden somewhere in Christine's hair. She watched my slow, clumsy retreat, but didn't acknowledge it apart from a slight widening of her smile. Then she nodded at me and turned to leave the basement, stopping for only a second. And, Mrs. Littletree, she added, the next time I ask you what year it is, you'll tell me it's 1919, at least for the next nine days. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am. I said, though I didn't at all. Not in the least, in fact. Children, children... Gather around and place your hand in the air. That's right. Fingers splayed wide, wide, wide so the wind can pass between them. Carry that sweet scent of trade on to the nose of the witcher. We are gathered here today in non-existence, awaiting the strike of the pen, the clatter of the keyboard, the moment when I might be introduced to the ears of the masses so that our work can spring forth anew in the hearts of millions. But though we are carried on the wings of angels, say true, our words must be electrified. Amen. Our words must be clarified. Amen. Our words must be carried wide. Amen. So go out there, little brothers, little sisters, and spread the gospel on social media. Put us on Reddit, put us on the Facebook, and put us on the Twitter, praise her. Share us far and wide, so that I might become and my story made clear. At WS Fairy Tales on Twitter, Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook, and Instagram. The link tree is in the description. Praise her name. Praise her. Mm, Praise her, yes. And let us together drive this sin from gun cotton. Mm. Raise your hands now. Raise your hands. Now back to our story already in progress. I took the wood upstairs and did as Christine said, 
following quickly behind her to put as much distance between myself and the corpse as possible. Having solved the mystery of the space beyond the wall, at least in this house, in this time, I had done little to settle my nerves. Even less, in fact, to ground me. My thoughts were given to small, intimate nightmares of my wife sleeping alone in a house where the basement was filled with old corpses. A pile of bodies, one hundred years and more of rot, making bones and sludge of them. And on top of it all, my own anonymous corpse, save for the lonely glint of my wedding band down there in the dark. Out of respect, caution really, for Mrs. Starling and her thin black needle, I performed my chores as ordered and mentioned nothing about the basement in front of her or her husband. Dr. Starling had gone back to normal, or at least he'd given up on the unsettling, hee-hawing laughter. But once all that was done, I slipped up to the second floor and then into the third floor attic, stopping only to grab a flashlight from the kitchen. It was an old thing, and truly a flashlight. It only seemed to work in stuttering yellow bursts, but I found my way through the drifts of linen throw covers and furniture to get to the stairs leading to the fourth floor. But they weren't there. I shined the light on the ceiling, watching nervously flash by flash as the cobweb shadows and dancing shades of the collected and shrouded figures appeared, disappeared, appeared. But there was nothing. Less than nothing. It was as though there had never been stairs on this level in the first place. There wasn't even an unbroken surface in the ceiling where a hatch or a door might be. Worse still, as I would discover tomorrow, this house didn't even have a fourth floor. Coming up on Scars in Time. Ash realizes she might be stuck in this nightmare for good when she finds the house doesn't even have the garret she's looking for. Gone, too, is the typewriter, though she can still hear it faintly throughout the house. She adapts to her new job as a housemaid while trying to figure out a way home and the meaning behind that other hers urging to find the Medusa, find the artist. It's painfully clear, however, that the doctor's own tenuous grip on sanity is rapidly slipping. She might run out of time before she can find the answers she needs. 
I hope you'll join us next episode for Scars and Time, Chapter 14. The Sickness. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.